Hello and welcome to the Anna Law Podcast. This is the first episode in our series on climate change law and policy, and our topic for discussion today is achieving net zero emissions in the maritime sector. Decarbonizing ocean-based transport offers some of the largest mitigation potential to climate change, and is key to achieving global net zero emissions by mid-century. A goal that was set out at COP26, the United Nations Climate Change Conference that took place in Glasgow last year. The timeline and pathway to achieving these goals for the maritime sector is being widely debated by industry and government, and a range of questions abound. Do we start, for instance, by changing to synthetic or alternate fuels? Do we focus on the top 10% of vessels who emit the most greenhouse gases? or do we focus more right now on emissions trading or bunkering processes most importantly who starts the work and who will pick up the burden of funding between government and private sector this podcast is based on a webinar moderated by adna law senior partner kamala naganand in november 2021 just after cop26 and it takes a deep dive into a range of issues surrounding the decarbonization of seas approaching from different angles questions around technologies fuels and government policies our cross sectoral panel of experts for this discussion include mr ko eng kyong director of research and projects global center for maritime decarbonization mr shreyas jaisimma founding partner at arna law ms suyin anand head of shipping south 32 and member local users council of the scma mr toby menzies Director of Business Development, Core Power UK Limited, and Miss Michelle Granatstein, partner at Oxera. As you will hear, they all have various entry points into the issue, but agree on one central theme: that there can be no one-size-fits-all solution. Stay tuned for the discussion ahead. to start by looking at why is it that today we're talking about decarbonization of the maritime sector according to an october 2019 um, report by the world bank the world will need to make significant changes to the way we are functioning covid-19 and global warming today which is really not a figment of our imagination but something that we've all experienced and seen for ourselves in each of the countries we live in cities we live in uh the impact the climate change is making there is going to be significant investment in infrastructure over the next 15 to 20 years the report of the world bank says investments of up to 90 trillion dollars will be needed between now and 2030 but unless this investment is sustainable there is going to be a global catastrophe transition to a green economy is something that can be done because we have the techn- technology but we have to unlock new economic opportunities to meld this technology and make it sustainable transition to a green economy is possible if we look at monetary values the same report clearly says that an investment of 1 dollar made today on an average would yield a benefit of approximately 4 dollars 
in the long run were we to use green technology so i'd like to begin by asking michelle to share with us a brief gist of what transpired at cop26 with respect to the need for industry to look at emissions with a special focus on the maritime industry so as you mentioned in the introduction um we at oxera were were at that cop and and with it finishing just less than 2 weeks ago we thought it was a useful time and a, a useful opening to the webinar today to pause and take stock about what was and wasn't achieved and also what might lie ahead going forward and if we look first kind of more broadly across the transport sector there was some progress made so there were more than 100 national governments cities and some major car companies that signed a declaration on zero emission cars and vans to uh, get rid of internal combustion engines in leading markets by 2035 and globally by 2040 and in aviation we had 80 signatories committed to boost green fuel to 10% of global jet fuel demand by 2030 but one of the really big questions leading into the summit was what could be achieved in the maritime sector which is a notoriously hard to abate sector and one where zero carbon infrastructure currently doesn't exist at scale and at the same time a sector which accounts for somewhere between 2 and 3% of global greenhouse gas emissions so it's perhaps that context which then led to a number of bold commitments being made as part of cop in the maritime sector So the first one was actually one that happened in advance of the summit and this was the call to action developed by the getting to zero coalition and this was submitted just ahead of cop and it was signed by more than 200 companies organizations across the entire value chain of ship in terms of shipping finance ports and fuel production pledging to work with the IMO to pursue the goal of zero emission shipping by 2050 The the second commitment then really led on from that call to action and this was the declaration on zero emission shipping by 2050. And this declaration was signed by 14 countries including major players such as the US, the UK, Germany, Norway, Panama and focuses on immediate reductions in emissions and shipping in the 2020s with the goal of reaching zero emission by 2050. and their goal is really to create this kind of tipping point in 2030 so working over the next 10 years but perhaps the most noteworthy achievement in terms of maritime at cop was the clyde bank declaration which established green shipping corridors and um as part of this there were 22 signatories including countries such as japan the us the uk australia and new zealand and they committed themselves to develop technology expertise and port infrastructure that will allow key international shipping routes to go zero carbon as part of a strategy to decarbonize the industry by 2050 so tangibly they agreed to establish six green corridors by 2025 with two initial candidates floated one was the iron ore route between australia and japan and another was the container shipping route between asia and europe and the goal is that there will be these green shipping corridors using fuels derived from green hydrogen renewable electricity or other sustainable sources i think what's amazing is that finally there is some action i think up to paris people were just talking about it and it's great to see that these two corridors have been identified because at least it's a beginning because if it can be done 
in these two corridors, then yes, they can rep replicate it all over the world. So I'd like to, you know, pose the next question to Mr. Ko. Mr. Ko, would you like to share with us, in order to reach this kind of net zero ambition by 2050, yes, there have been trials of various alternative fuels. There has been a lot of talk in industry to look at what is the option available or what is the next best option available to them. So could you throw some light on the alternative fuels available in the industry? So when we talk about uh, decarbonization solutions, available fuels, uh, we do have a few candidates that a lot of people has been talking about. And they are like the biofuels. It is a very easy solution for drop-in and is compatible with existing heavy fuel oil and marine gas oil. And of course, what is very kind of uh, being uh, talked about is uh, ammonia, a form of hydrogen carrier, because uh, it basically don't have a carbon bond. It has the highest uh, hydrogen molecules among the lot. And, uh, but then it comes with this issue in terms of uh, it is made predominantly around for the fertilizer and chemical industries. It is not a fuel per se. So you need to actually ramp up the quantity and also to understand whether the source is green enough. If you look at the short to midterm, like from 2020 onwards to 2030, you can look at uh, LNG because it's available and we can actually use it uh, as of now and slowly transit into bioenergy. Biodiesel, uh, first and second generations, is also being uh, considered now because you can actually feed into current infrastructures. And of course, we are also aware that there are vessels running on methanol fuels. Fossil based for now, like MERS actually announced that, uh, of course, there'll be renewable and green methanol coming online. I mean, that's the um, plan. In terms of longer term, we take 2030 as the, the, the line, the time to actually transit. Uh, we will see um, ammonia coming on, on stream, biodiesel third generations, meaning that it has to be more sustainable from LG sources or from waste. And renewable methanol that will come and bio LNG. So that is how we see the availability of the fuel across uh, from now to the future. Uh, now, I also want to stress that uh, we cannot solely depend on alternative fuels. There are other measures like the technical uh, measures and operation measures that's available for ships to be more efficient in terms of the technologies uh, using fuel and also to operate in a more energy efficient manner. So there are a lot of, uh, I would say, measures available. Uh, may I request Suyin to come in now and share with us you know, what, Suyun, do you think are the practical challenges in impl implementing this transition to alternative fuels and keeping the real world in mind, things like cost, you know, global standards, benchmarks involved uh, from a shipping a ship owner's perspective? Yes, uh, thanks, Kamala. Um, first off, I'd like to say I can't really comment from a ship owner's perspective, but I can comment from a shipping perspective, uh, given I'm not a ship owner. But, you know, the previous speakers have touched on most of the challenges, if not all the challenges. One, it's a complex issue uh, involving multiple stakeholders, invo involving multiple technologies. Um, there's no clear uh, solution. There's no clear regulation. 
there's no clear framework within which uh, corporates can proceed to uh, understand or start problem solving for this. There's also no one size fits all at the moment. Um, and each company will be working off different budgets. So you can't expect an owner who owns one ship or two ships to be as engaged and have the same type of resources to problem solve for this as an owner who owns five, six, seven hundred ships. I think as well, if I were to be really honest about it, as with every trend of the moment or with any sexy topic, there's a lot of information being thrown upon uh, companies within the industry, a lot of expectations with just the demand that you do something about it. And that's where I just want to suggest that the starting point when we consider these issues as a corporate, it's not what is the alternative fuel that I should be going on. But what corporate should be thinking about is what does this actually mean for my organization? What is the decarbonization problem as it relates to my organization? And then proceed to understand what is the size of the problem as it relates to my organization and where is the biggest footprint? Where does it sit? We focus a lot on emissions during a voyage, but let's not forget that you have to look at the entire supply chain. For a ship owner, what is a ship owner scope one, scope two, scope three emissions? Where is that the biggest emissions footprint? What are the low-hanging fruits that I can proceed to solve for first whilst industry regulators um, catch up or make advancements on the bigger problems like alternate fuels? Have a good understanding about what is coming our way in the long term. And I think, you know, what has been set up and agreed at COP26 is a good start for understanding what the expectations in the longer term are. It's not just about uh, alternative fuels. In the short term, there are other steps that ship owners can be taking together with their stakeholders to problem solve in the areas of vessel optimization, fuel optimization, better scheduling, better planning. It's understanding all this, understanding what we can do in the short term in order to achieve the net zero emission target to set out there. Coming back to regulations, Shares, would you be able to throw uh, some light on what the current regulatory positions on maritime decarbonization are in a composite approach towards regulating carbon emissions and decarbonization? What is the need of the R? Uh, yeah, I'd just like to thank you, Kamala. I'd like to draw back the attention to where we began uh, with Michelle pointing out that the IMO has set a modest, but perhaps achievable uh, timeline of 2050 for achieving about 50% reductions in global greenhouse emissions. Now, this may not be as aggressive as the other uh, statements that have been heard. That noise and enthusiasm ought not to drive away the cautious step-by-step -step approach that the industry leader organizations can put in place. Obviously, the other uh, initiatives of uh, having zero emission fleets or zero uh, net zero itself being achieved by uh, 2050 by uh, commitments being made by some nations can certainly uh, help 
and uh, inspire other nations to act further. But I am also speaking from the context of in, in which countries uh, like India have made the point that net zero can certainly be achieved, but perhaps at a slightly longer period of time. Uh, in fact, uh, India has made the commitment of uh, achieving that by 2070. So when you come to the regulatory responses to um, achieving these objects, there are multiple milestones that commercial organizations, nation states, and corporations are uh, issuing uh, for themselves. So what we could foresee in the coming days would be some market-based uh, measures. Also, of course, uh, domestically, um, sovereign nations might uh, impose uh, um, either investment in incentives or even uh, taxation measures to incentivize investment uh, and the transition from uh, fuel oil uh, to, to other uh, uh, more efficient uh, technologies. The, uh, and also the uh, significant capital investment that comes in has to be, has to be considered. And please bear this in mind in the time of the great dis disruption that we have seen in the shipping uh, supply chains itself. So as uh, sort of may, uh, even the supply chains for complex projects like aircraft, like ships, uh, there's an effort to, uh, to contain the, the length of these uh, supply chains. And there's an effort to shorten those uh, supply chain lengths as well as part of the learning from what we have seen in the past few months. So the regulatory efforts would be perhaps to uh, uh, look at uh, regional uh, trade arrangements where um, the uh, uh, components can be uh, more expeditiously provided. Uh, uh, and then to also, as Suen and Enkyong uh, have been making the point, looking at measures outside of alternate fuels per se, and looking at measures to incentivize, identify key measurements uh, uh, for um, um, uh, the decarbonization of existing uh, uh, shipping arrangements and uh, ensuring that those uh, are, are met. I'll quickly point out to the uh, ship uh, sea cargo charter um, that represented some of the early efforts uh, to include um, clauses in charter parties um, uh, which might be more environmentally uh, focused as well. And, um, uh, but at the end of the day, uh, we do need, whatever the measures are, uh, we do need some accountability, transparency, and ultimately enforcement of those measures. Thank you. So, you know, going back to innovation, we're seeing that there is a lot of innovation happening in the maritime industry, uh, especially with regard to technology. There is also a willingness to make these investments. There are the fuels, as we have seen, to support decarbonization of the maritime sector. So what are the incentives that the industry is waiting for? Or what are the incentives that we can give them to kind of quicken this process and, you know, make it happen? Yeah, I think, you know, the industry, uh, speak to any startup and they'll shake their head and they'll tell you, my God, this industry is slow to move. No one wants to be the first one to, you know, put a step forward or test a new technology. So I'll say, I look at it two ways. One is internally within the organization and one is the external environment. Both sides start with a mindset shift. Internally within an organization, we need leaders to start recognizing, as I mentioned below, 
that having an act uh, earlier that having an actionable sustainability policy, which includes uh, decarbonisation, is inherently linked to having a valid uh, license to operate. And uh, why is that? Because an actionable sustainable sustainable policy covers not only decarbonisation; it's linked very closely to issues like uh, the environment, to diversity, to modern-day slavery. Why is all this important? It's important because these are issues which your investors, your regulators, and I would say this very important stakeholder that always gets ignored or forgotten, your talent. Your younger generation of employees, those entering the workforce now, are very concerned with what the company's position is in the sustainability space. So as leaders, we need to look upon this not only as, oh my God, these are regulations that are being imposed on me. These are additional costs that are being imposed on me. Of course, that's important, but it's linked to our license to operate. Once that mindset shift occurs, I think the incentive or the internal incentive to try to do things a bit differently, to tackle the sustainability issues that, are faced, uh, that we face will start gaining traction. If it doesn't, it's going to be really difficult for companies to hire next generation of talent. Uh, Michelle, I'd like to come back to you to say, you know, the, what are the outcomes? What does the shipping industry have to expect? Yeah, so maybe just picking up on three themes or, or three things I think that we've heard from, from the panel today and which I think we can probably expect to, to see more of going forward. So I think the first obvious one is, is innovation. So we've heard a lot today about innovation going on in all parts of the value chain by you know large companies, small startups, et cetera. And I think we can certainly expect to see more of that going forward. The question is whether we need something to help spur innovation on in a sense, and this comes back to the question about market-based measures. And it's something we we didn't hear a lot about at COP, but has been talked about in the industry for some time. So I wonder if the second thing we, we might see more of going forward is those forms of market-based measures. I think the third thing goes to kind of, there's a lot of initiatives. There's kind of this patchwork of declarations, commitments by different countries coming together, industry, et cetera. Um, but but not really, you know, more wide ranging strategies at the moment. And so will there be pressure? Um, you know, is, is the IMO next, you know, greenhouse gas strategy in 2023 the right way to do that? Um, should we rely on kind of these more patchwork approach to, to declarations and commitments to get us there? Um, and um, overall, regardless of whether it's kind of more at a global strategy level or or more I would guess, yeah, more of this patchwork approach, there's probably um, going to be much more more ambition and tangible action, I would expect. I think, uh, you know, Shreya has raised the good points of maybe less ambition, but more realistic. And I think that's a good question and um, probably one we, we could debate for a long time. But I, I do expect to see more more ambition, whether, whether it's all realistic and whether it's all going to come to fruition is probably one we can wait to see on. Fantastic. And on that note, let's all hope that the industry takes notice and they all work towards being the change that they want to see around them. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adna Law Podcast. This discussion was jointly hosted by Adna Law, Simha Law, Oxera, and the Singapore Chamber of Maritime Arbitration with support from the Baltic Exchange. 
You can watch the full webinar on YouTube and you'll find a link to that discussion in our episode notes. Follow our podcast on www.adnalaw.com or on our LinkedIn page. We'll see you again soon for more.